It's Tuesday, March the 30th, and you're watching Goodfellows, a Hoover Institution broadcast examining social, economic, political, and geopolitical concerns in this time of pandemic. I'm Bill Whalen. I'm the Virginia Hobbs Carpenter Fellow in Journalism here at the Hoover Institution. I'll be the moderator of today's show. That means I have the pleasure of introducing three of my colleagues, three Hoover Institution senior fellows, who we jokingly refer to as good fellows, in case you're wondering about the movie crossover. That's good fellows. These are good fellows. And our first good fellow is John Cochran. John is an economist and the Hoover Institution's Rosemary and Jack Anderson senior fellow. Hello, John. How are you today? I'm great. Great to see you, Barry. Our second good fellow, Lieutenant General H.R. McMaster. He is the Hoover Institution's Fawad Michelle Ajami Senior Fellow. He is also the author of the best-selling book, Battlegrounds, The Fight to Defend the Free World. Hello, H.R. Hey, Bill. It's great to be with you, John, Neil, and our special guest. Who we'll get to in a second. And our third good fellow, before we get to our guest, uh, is our colleague, Neil Ferguson, who is the Hoover Institution's uh, Milbank Family Senior Fellow. Neil is, of course, a renowned historian and author. He has a book coming out. Neil, I think it is five weeks from today. May the 4th is a release. You still have time to go pre-order, folks. The title of that book, Doom, the Politics of Catastrophe. Speaking of catastrophe, Neil, it looks like you've abandoned the wilderness outpost or been relieved of duty. Uh, are you closer to home now? Indeed, I'm I'm back and uh, and clean-shaven with it. Uh, so it's uh, it's a delight to be uh, back where I belong, and even more of a delight to see Barry Weiss as our guest. Yes, yeah, so Neil just gave it away. Our guest today is Barry Weiss. Uh, in case you don't know who Barry Weiss is, she is a journalist and an author. She actually has a, a newsletter on Substack called Common Sense with Barry Weiss. Here's why Barry Weiss is on our show today, in which we're going to talk about cancel culture. And uh, on a Tuesday in July of 2020, Barry Weiss posted a resignation letter in which she called out the New York Times for fostering a culture of bullying by those who dare engage what she calls wrong thing. Barry was at the Times, uh, was at the time working at the Times as an opinion section writer and editor, uh, but she quit that uh, very prestigious job. Uh, so today we're going to talk about what prompted Barry to write that letter, what is going on with cancel culture and the mindset that's taken over America's most influential media outlets, most elite prep universities and universities, and how one can get by in the workplace today, uh, daring to think differently. So Barry, welcome to Goodfellows. Thank you. Honorary to, uh, happy to be an honorary Goodfellow for the day, for the hour. Yes, you'll get a swag bag at the end of the show. Uh, <laughs> So let's begin, Barry. Again, I know uh, my three colleagues are just dying to get into this with you. I'd like to read you something that you wrote for the New York Post back in January, and I think it's a good way to start this conversation. Here's what you said, quote, by any measure, we have achieved incredible progress and enjoy extraordinary freedoms, and yet people aren't acting that way. They're acting increasingly like subjects in a totalitarian country. These people write to me daily. They admit to regularly censoring themselves at work and with friends, succumbing to social pressure to tweet the right hashtag, to parroting slogans they do not believe to protect their livelihoods, like the green grocer in Vaclav Havel's famous essay, The Power of the Powerless. You added, quote, these people are art crazy. They are scared for good reason. Barry, why are these people scared? And how did we get to this point? Well, phenomenon that we think of, or at least that I had always thought about as being contained to totalitarian countries, phenomenon that like doublethink and dissidents um, are increasingly applicable to our to the the home of the the free, um, which is a very, very strange phenomenon because by all measures, like you said before, we live in a liberal democracy and yet people are acting as if there is something like a gulag here. There is no gulag, but people are acting that way. 
And the reason for that, I think, um, is largely because of the machine and the technology that we're using to talk to each other right now. I can go on social media um, and misconstrue anything, a phrase, three seconds of video that one of you says in this conversation. And potentially, if the right number of blue check marks pick up on it, ruin your life. And so given the fact that we live in the era of the cloud, uh, the information that we put out into the world, everything about us is recorded you know, into eternity. Every mistake that we make, every small misstep, every error in our speech is recorded forever. There's no such thing as moving to a new town. It follows you wherever you go. And so when we see, and some of these examples are celebrities, but some of them are just normal people. When you see um, an actress fired from her, you know, having her career totally derailed for sharing uh, a politically incorrect meme. When you see a 16 year old, or I guess she was 17, uh, have her college admissions to the University of Tennessee rescinded because of a TikTok video, a three second TikTok video she put out several years prior that her classmate held on to almost in a vengeful way in order to release it at exactly the right moment when he knew it would have the most grievous impact on her life. When you see enough of those examples, and I, you know, we could go on for hours with the examples that I have in my back pocket, that sends a very powerful message to everyone else, which is conform and obey to this new ideology that calls itself social justice, but is in fact incredibly illiberal. And so not only do you have people censoring themselves for the mores of the present, you have people preemptively censoring themselves for jokes or figures of speech that they anticipate will be unacceptable six months or a year or several years from now. So that is the phenomenon that I think we're living in. I think people wrongly understand this. You know, people hear the phrase, I think, cancel culture, and they think, oh, it's a little frivolous. It's a little bit of crazy people. It's one or two fringe characters online. Um, no, these are examples of what I think of as a kind of American version of a cultural revolution. It's not coming from Mao to the Red Guards and, you know, flowing its way down, but it's, it's very, that doesn't mean that it's not incredibly powerful and it's not exerting a tremendous impact on the individual choices of people in their lives, but also I would say on the choices that are being made by the very institutions that are supposed to be charged with upholding the liberal order in America. Could I ask you on, on that? <clears throat> so your point, it's the information, uh, which is true now, but we've had outbreaks of this sort of thing before. Uh, so I'm not sure that the information as opposed to the what we choose to do with it is the central culprit. After all, widespread information ought to let one quickly set a record straight, which was impossible uh, back in the old days. Uh, Instead, it is what you point to is it, it is a almost a political slash religious movement. Uh, what's interesting about it compared to, say, the Bolsheviks, the Maoists and so forth, is that it is more on, on seems more on the religious end than the political end, because there are for the moment no leaders and very little of a program of what they will do when they actually uh, take power. Uh, but, you know, we, we've seen um, the Great Awakenings. We've seen the Protestant Reformation, which turned political and violent. We've seen witch trials where, you know, you just the quickest way to not be accused of being a witch is to accuse someone else of being a witch. Uh, a lot of that 
um, uh, of that phenomenon has happened before, along with the very much, you know, there's a lot of um, guilty rich people who are looking for a, a reason to expiate their guilt and yep. denouncing denouncing their neighbor seems to be a good way to do it. Uh, uh, parenthetically, it's kind of funny that these are all the products of, of uh, years of anti-bullying training who have perhaps <laughs> turned that into a how-to manual that the rest of us didn't really... <laughs> Well, bullying, bullying is wrong unless you're bullying the right people, in which case it's, it's very, very right. Right. I, mean, so I wonder, Barry, is, is just to pick up where John left off. Uh, he kind of went marching into my territory there, uh, straight into the history, just taking all my lines away. But is this the, well, great, better. <laughs> is this the great awakening? Should we think of this as part of an American tradition of uh, – Religion, this is just a secular iteration of it. You mentioned the Cultural Revolution in China, and you made the really important point, which I completely agree with, that this is bottom-up rather than top-down. Or rather, it emanates from certain institutions. I remember Andrew Sullivan saying a few years ago, we all live on campus now. Would it be fair to say that the Great Awakening, this quasi-religious, quasi-cultural revolution, originated at the universities? I would say absolutely yes. And other people who are way more well-versed than me in Foucault and Gramsci and post-structuralism and Marxism could explain that better to you. What I would say is that it's very clear that the nucleation point for this ideology were the universities and originally kind of the fringe departments of the universities. And the old consensus, you know, you could ask a Republican or a Democrat, a liberal, a conservative, they would all tell you the same thing up until extremely recently. And that was, it's campus nonsense. As these gender studies majors at Oberlin or, you know, an anthropology major at Columbia where I graduated 15 years ago, and it was this was already very much the dominant mode back then, which, you know, just imagine where it's gone since then that they would get their job at, you know, in corporate America or in a tech company in Silicon Valley or at a place like the New York Times. And they would lose, they would leave the kind of radical excesses of campus ideology behind them. And they would come to be shaped by the, in, in the mold of the institution. But the opposite, as people like Yuval Levin have noted, has happened. What's actually happened is that these institutions have been transformed by the people who were marinating in deeply illiberal ideas, deeply illiberal ideas. And so I guess the good news and the bad news is that ideas really matter. It actually very much matters what you learn and what you're exposed to as a young person, and especially in the formative years of college. So in a way, Neil, you're right. It has been bottom up in the sense that it's the pressure was originally coming from these younger, these younger people. But what's really strange is that the people that ought to have the authority inside these institutions who are charged with upholding the values of the institutions are folding like a tent in front of this thing. And that's the really interesting question. I think sometimes we forget that there are people, there are adults in the room or ostensible adults in the room who theoretically have the power to turn this off, have the power to say, no, I'm not actually going to, you know, keep the new editor of Teen Vogue, a 27-year-old, from assuming her position because as a 16-year-old, she put out 
homophobic and bigoted anti-Asian tweets that she's already apologized for. I'm not going to give in. I'm not going to give in to your protests, the other 20 people that protested. And if you feel uncomfortable by her being in charge of the magazine, you're free to walk out the door. Same situation with Tom Cotton at the New York Times, same situation with hundreds of other examples that we could cycle through right now, but it's all the same story. And the story is, is that the people that are in charge utterly lack a sense of moral authority and really of courage to stand up in the face of this movement. And that to me is the more interesting question than why are there true believers? Because I understand, I think more readily, um, the impulses of the true believers who are desperate for a sense of purpose, a sense of meaning, a sense of being on the right side of history, a sense of having a good cause to fight for. What is harder for me to understand are the people that are enabling the march of this new religion. HR, I had a question for you. I was going to segue to you in a way that might help. I used to say there was a problem of political skew. That's to say the ratio of uh, of liberals to conservatives or Democrats to Republicans in nearly every institution except the American military uh, academies, colleges, West Point, et cetera, and that at least those institutions hadn't yet been captured. But I don't, I don't know if this is true anymore. And one has a sense that the great capitulation that Barry just alluded to, where the people in authority just roll over under pressure from the woke Red Guards, even in the military, this is starting to happen. What's your take there? Well, you know, I would just say it can't happen in the military because, because if, if, if uh, the military adopts this ideology, uh, that, that they will no longer be combat effective, right? There are, are, you know, are units uh, that fight together as teams uh, are bound together by a covenant, a covenant with one another that, that is based on, on principles, values like self-sacrifice and honor, the achievement of an aim uh, that, that they're willing to sacrifice for. And so this kind of, you know, this kind of, uh, uh, you know, identity politics and, and, uh, and, and, uh, and this tendency to regard uh, people as as victims, as as kind of the new form of heroism, has no place, right? In uh, in the military. And what I was going to ask Barry is is I, as as I as I look at this problem set, I see that there's a tendency to portray victimhood as the new heroism. And I think you called uh, you called identity politics the Olympics of, of victimhood. Uh, in your in your excellent book, which I really enjoyed reading, Barry, uh, on on how to fight anti-Semitism, what I like about your essays is, is that you actually are trying to tell people, hey, you have agency, you have influence over your future. You don't have to just be uh, a, a victim. And and I think that that what we see these days is is that our our younger generation is being taught that victimhood. Uh, is is the new heroism, and that victimhood is how they can achieve uh, really uh, you know, uh, virtue, uh, and and instead of accomplishing and overcoming obstacles uh, that are put in their way. Thank you so much. I think that it's not true everywhere, but it's certainly true in elite America that victimhood or claiming victimhood or weaponizing victimhood is the quickest pathway to power. And I think there's every incentive for people right now, at least in elite American institutions, to claim it and claim it as, as many uh, rungs in the victimhood ladder as they can possibly grasp, because they know that that 
gives them moral and epistemological authority. That is what is so perverse about this ideology. It doesn't believe that anyone can, uh, that anyone is equally capable of grasping truths. It believes that who you are, literally your immutable characteristics, the circumstances of your birth, determine how much truth claim you have in the world. It determines how much your voice matters. And that to me is totalitarian. It is illiberal. And, you know, I don't believe that the solution to past historical wrongs is to take the old, let's call it the old caste system and flip it on its head and replace it with a new one. I believe that the historical remedy to that kind of evil mindset, evil worldview, is to say, no, we reject any worldview that, that constrains people to the lane of their birth and that insists that we judge people by the sins of their father or by the color of their skin. That is you, always wrong, no matter who is selling it. And, you know, Barry, this is why this is such a danger to the military if it were to infect the military. Right? But, but because, hold on. It's our, hasn't it infected the military? We're talking well, about like it hasn't happened. Well, you know, I, I, I would like to believe that it hasn't happened within military units where people are bound together really by their common commitment to one another, by mutual respect and common purpose. And, you know, they're in an infantry platoon or a scout platoon or a tank platoon. <laughs> there is no room for, for people who, who, who identify, you know, based on their identity category. Right. You, you are there as American soldiers who are committed to one another and committed to, to the mission. And any kind of any kind of reversion to this, you know, to, to this identity category is by definition, you know, cuts against the cohesion of, of that military unit. So I, I do think, though, popular culture, Barry, cheapens and coarsens the warrior ethos. I think that there are many, and this is why it's a danger to the military, because our, you know, our, our military is and, and should be responsive to civilian authority. I think that there are many civilians these days who don't understand that warrior ethos. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and of course, uh, even I think because of this tendency to see victimhood as new heroism, I think that, that that is why our warriors are often seen as hapless recipients of, of a fate that's already predetermined rather than those who exercise really control over, over their, their fate through the, through their military prowess, their battlefield prowess. We, we never really celebrate victories on, on the battlefield these days. We only really report uh, on casualties suffered. This is why I think it, some uh, some people portray veterans, right, as traumatized, fragile human beings. And so so I, I am concerned about how popular culture uh, is portraying military service and veterans. Uh, and, and, and I think military leaders have to be really particularly sensitive these days uh, to ensuring that we can, that, that our units uh, are, aren't infected by this kind of. So I, I want to challenge uh, both of these views. And I think it's the military is in more danger than you think. Uh, and I think it has moved from a bottom up to a top down. Uh, mm -hmm. Let's think about what we've said. What we've said is that this idea has now infected all of the institutions of civil society, nonprofits, media, government agencies, all the alphabet soup, NGOs, uh, you, you know, all of philanthropy you, you, is just completely taken over. It's a view that is very small among the electorate, but once you've got all the institutions of civil society, 
you have power. And now it's got the federal government. Uh, we already have two executive orders commanding uh, equity, inclusion, social justice, and climate through every action uh, of, of the federal government. In the military, the military is in the end run by civilians. <laughs> we'll tell the military what to do. And it's, I think, a symptom, I'm an economist. Uh, um, HR said, uh, you know, uh, the army has to be ready, has to meet that test on the battlefield. Well, we don't fight wars that often. Um, and many armies through history have grown complacent and ineffective because they don't face the competitive test. Our institutions are, it's not the competitive institutions, it's the not so competitive institutions that are able to indulge in this sort of thing and, and the government being uh, number one. So I, I think it can, I think it is in the process of becoming top down and that is the point. Uh, take power and shove it down the rest of our throats. Because the thing we didn't mention at the universities, lots of strange ideas grow up in universities. What's new about this is not the ideas themselves, but the idea of silencing others. Uh, that's the effective part. It's not whatever crazy stuff they say. Uh, and it's, it's what you didn't learn in college and are no longer allowed to learn in college. <laughs> that is in fact the dangerous part of it. And then you, then you get to these to your institutions and nobody knows anything anymore. I'd also challenge that the upper, that this is just a failure of nerve on the upper ranks. The upper ranks seem to be all in for it too. Why? Because you know, they want to get, uh, they want to get the, the invited to Davos. They want to get the pleasure of being toasted at the philanthropic club. Uh, I look at, you know, the upper reaches of the Federal Reserve and the NGOs that I study, they're all jumping into climate change, social justice, and it's not, they're the Woodstock generation. Um, so there's, I don't think there's a desire to push back that doesn't have a spine. I think fear is a much bigger part of this than, than you imply, John. Okay, I'll go with that. that. I don't think the, the people in positions of authority at universities are themselves terribly woke. Most of them are old school liberals who kind of had a free speech default position. But what happens in uh, in a cultural revolution or great awakening is it begins with the no platformings. It begins with the cancellations, the disinvitations, and it gradually escalates. They begin with the conservatives. They begin with the people who are quote unquote controversial. And this is like happened in a relatively short time frame. True, the left was already a phenomenon, a force in universities decades ago. It was a topic of conversation yeah, yeah. in the 60s. But it wasn't until really quite recently that the academic left became profoundly illiberal in the sense that it began to police speech uh, and to cancel uh, invitations, rescind uh, invitations, protest against honorary degrees. I remember when uh, my wife, whom Barry knows well, I am, um, Hersey Ali was disinvited, having been invited to speak at uh, the commencement uh, at Brandeis University. I, that was in 2014. Yeah, it, right. was, it was then that I realized what was going to happen, that, that they would begin with petitions and calls for disinvitation. And the university top brass would fold out of cowardice. The most powerful force in human history is not courage, HR. Sadly, it's a minority pursuit. The most powerful force in human history is total cowardice. Now, most revolutions are famously supposed to eat their own children. That's an old and familiar phrase. But this revolution is quite interesting because it eats its own parents. The liberals who hired the woke, the people who appointed and gave tenure to clearly illiberal uh, ideologues are now being 
devoured or are so afraid of being devoured by this younger generation that they will capitulate at almost the first uh, shot of uh, the first petition, the first email, they fold. And I, I think that there are, there are two things that you need in order to be able to stand up to this. One, and you lose most people with this, you have to be willing to be called a racist, which is the gravest of all sins in our culture, and evil. And you have to be willing to be called it in order to stand up to this ideology. You also have to be willing to argue for inequality of outcome. You have to be willing to argue that inequality of outcome is not necessarily uh, the logical outgrowth of systemic bigotry, which is the other pillar of this ideology. With that, you've already lost a huge majority of people. I mean, you have a few courageous people, you have a lot of cowards, and then you just have a lot of conformists. John, when you were talking before about the people in charge who seem all in for it, there is a major chasm often, I find, in that class between the things they are learning from their assistants to post on Twitter and the things they actually say in the privacy around their dining room table with a few guests. Oftentimes, these people are, like the greengrocer in the essay, fronting as true believers because they think that that's the only way that they can hang on to their job, or they've convinced themselves that that's the kind of price you need to pay in order to negotiate with this thing, in order to kind of rein it in. And I would just say that from watching all the examples over the past few years, which are too many to count, it's very clear to me that this is not an ideology that can really be reasoned with, because as has been discussed in the past few minutes, you know, it does really function more like a religion that casts out anyone who's a heretic, that casts out anyone who doesn't agree with every tenant and the tenants keep growing. If you look at me and you look at my life and the way I live my life and my personal choices and my identity, I'm exactly someone that should be, you know, a member in good standing of the progressive left. But because I don't fit every and agree with every single aspect of this thing, you know, it was kind of impossible for me to to continue working in an institution that has very clearly been captured by by this new religion or this new ideology. I, I want to say I think both of you are right. If you think about you know, what I've been looking at lately, if you're a central banker and you want to get ahead, do you work on marking to market swaps contracts or do you go give climate and social justice talks? Yeah. It's clear what what you choose to do. And I think that that principle of self-interested choice of, of language goes anyway. But I want to take up what you said, Barry, uh, earlier on, on inequality, because um, I want you to help us get in the heads of, of our young woke millennials. Um, what do they want? Where is it going? Uh, is there anything coherent here? Uh, one thing I notice is that the goals are inherently unmeasurable. Um, distribution of income is, is one that you can almost sort of think about measuring, but you posed it right. So what's inequality might be more, but what's the right amount of inequality? Is, is society systemically racist and unjust until we all report exactly the same number on the bottom line of our 1040 form? <laughs> uh, the more the, the the various kinds of justices. How do you know when you've got there? Is there a goal here other than just sort of we want to take power and tell the rest of you what to do? But then I I can't see there is any end. You know when, when yes maybe capitalism is bad. So what do you guys want instead? We we've tried some socialisms. Those didn't work out too well. 
uh, it, it sort of looks like crony capitalism with high taxes, lots of benefits, and and uh, lots of consulting contracts for uh, for 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 woke woke people is where we go. But um, I, I want to I asked it a lo lot of ways to sort of open up the question: uh, Is this a program, or is this just opiate for the upper classes that will always be the rallying cry for cry for put us in power and get rid of the people we don't like? Mm -hmm. I mean, listen, I think that in order to understand it, in order to get in the head of people who are the true believers, it's important to understand their experience of American capitalism, which has not been great. <laughs> like, you know, the, the, wait, 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 these are the kids of well-off people who go to fancy colleges and are and are shoehorned into jobs at the New York Times. This is the this is an upper class phenomenon. The kids, kids I know who live out in Fresno in the Central Valley and work as firefighters are not <laughs> one bit woke. Okay, fair enough. I guess the, the right way to frame it would be, these are kids who have grown up on the internet, mm -hmm. who don't, by and large, don't go to a synagogue, a mosque, or a church, Yes, who don't have a sense of community or meaning, um, who, you know aren't having sex, which is a really fascinating topic for another podcast, um, whose experience of life is all mitigated through a glass rectangle in their pocket, um, and who, even as they are, you're right, John, the products of the supposed meritocracy, I think, you know, increasingly see through its hypocrisies. So, like, that is the, con you have to understand, like, in order to defeat this, we need to understand what is drawing people toward it. What is there's drawing an argument that, that there's an argument, isn't there, that precisely the appeal of, of cultural uh, wars, the shift to identity politics and away from economics, uh, is that actually you don't end up significantly altering the distribution of wealth and income at all. Because the left lost the economic argument back in the day in the 1980s, lost it totally. And now what I see happening, and I think it took a while to take shape, is a shift into an entirely new landscape of, of culture. And one of the reasons that major corporations and indeed very wealthy people, even billionaires, are prepared to go along with this is that they know that actually this is an easier revolution to ride out than a revolution that genuinely aimed at redistributing the means of production. Right. And I think that's why co corporate America is like, sure, ESG, let's sign up for virtue signaling yes. and let's let these people into the human resources department. What could possibly go wrong? Because they think that this is actually preferable to real socialism of, Ber of the Bernie Sanders vintage. I think this is a terrible mistake, mind you, but I think that's how they think. Yeah, yeah. I think it's the perfect smokescreen for the, you know, Sun Valley Aspen class of people. What they wrongly, um, what they what they wrongly seem to, what they are unable to see is Neil. You're exactly right. Let these people in, give them a job. They don't understand that they're literally letting the wolves into the hen house, and that soon after they make that decision, some of those people call me up and say, "Wait, hold on, like help help." me understand what exactly this ideology is about because it claims to be about all of these things that and all of these values that I've lived my whole life by like anti-racism like social justice like progressivism 
But then why am I scared of making a joke and losing the company that I've built myself? And the goal is also, this is a key question going back to John's, what do they want? There is a goal, I think, and one hears this often in universities and now in professions, of representation of all minorities in proportion to their share in the population. And so that, that's one of the measurable goals that, that I, I see being set. Example of where we are. A friend calls up the other day, uh, uh, a professional, not an academic, and says, there's a campaign underway in, in my profession to create targets that amount to quotas uh, for blacks in the profession. And I'm on a large call with a good many other participants and nobody except me is willing to object to this as a goal. What should I do? Uh, should I write a piece about this? And I said, do not do that. Do not, under any circumstances, be that one person, particularly not that one white guy, that fixes his bayonet and jumps out the trench and runs towards the other side because at some point you'll look behind you and find yourself completely alone. I think that is a, a goal that is implicit in much that's being argued for. And in the end, it amounts to a systematic discrimination. Anti-racism, you've used the phrase a couple of times, the term a couple of times, turns out to be, let's now discriminate against the others uh, in the way that previously we discriminated against African-Americans, for example. And so we end up in a territory, which is to me kind of topsy-turvy, the notion of equality before the law is thrown aside and we end up in a, a new and systematic form of discrimination. It's just with the sign reversed. And it even gets crazier than that. In the newspaper you used to work for, the New York Times, they would start, they were running just in the last couple of years, opinion pieces that appear to be in favor of segregation with headlines like, should I let my black child play with white kids? You see segregation happening at some educational institutions. Uh, Brett Weinstein ended up being run off the campus at Evergreen because he was opposed to uh, a no whites on campus day. Well, I so I do think there are measurable goals. It's just that they're, to my mind, really objectionable goals. Yeah, I would just draw a distinction, I guess, between just as there's good identity politics and bad identity politics, there's good anti-racism and there's bad anti-racism. The problem right now is the only mode of anti-racism that is not the only, but the very dominant mode in American culture right now is the bad Ibram Kendi, Robin DiAngelo critical race theory version of anti-racism. There's another version of anti-racism that is, you know, summarized by, you know, King's idea that we should judge people by the content of their character and not by the color of their skin. That is also anti-racism. It is anti-racist, good anti-racist to say race is a social construct used by racists. And we should try and get to a point where the idea of race is increasingly not relied on rather than buying into social policies or ideas that reify this social construct. All of the people that if we had a healthier culture and a more normal media environment would be far bigger celebrities than Ibram Kendi. 
I also think we're mistaking, Neil's mistaking here a little bit, a goal of the movement with a uh, bad use of superficial statistics. Um, yes, it's often tossed out, oh, there's only, you know, 12.6% African-Americans in white in, in something, um, or, you know, usually 1.6, and we need to bring the numbers up. But that's not the fundamental goal. The fundamental goal is to be in charge of, of who hires and who gets what. Um, because uh, as that, that goal, we, we all will soon recognize it's impossible. Uh, economics right now is devoted to um, academia. Everybody has to hire, um, you, you know, we're, we're supposed to only hire blacks until they get up to, I think it's, what is it, 13% at the same ratio of the population. That's clearly impossible. Why? Because the schools are terrible. The public schools are terrible and they don't get into, there's just not enough uh, qualified, even vaguely qualified candidates. So that goal will fall by the wayside. But it's just, that's, that's a bad use of statistics because, um, you know, one is not, it's perfectly obvious that an institution is not racist if it is doing absolutely everything it can to let in at that stage, whoever's available. There is something to systemic racism. It's in the public schools, but there's nothing that Stanford University can do about that in its hiring. And it will have to face that fact. Uh, I think we're all about to face that now as, as universities. Once, once the musical chairs stop and the, all the available uh, black graduate students have been hired, everybody else will need someone to teach their classes. So that's a, that's a, uh, it's a talking point. It's not really a, a deep goal, I think, of the movement. The, the goal of the movement is to take power and keep it and force it down the rest of our throats. Although then to what end? Well, um, <laughs> Utopian, uh, utopian revolutions have always had a little bit of a trouble of exactly what is the utopia going to look like once we're in charge and tell everybody else what to do. Can I right. just go back to one thing Neil was saying before? Is that okay? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. The advice to the friend, the advice to the anonymous mm. friend. In, uh, I, I'm, I guess I'm, I'm surprised by the advice. Not that you're wrong about the fact that he would be sort of alone against the crowd and would be smeared and all those things would happen to him. But I think we need to be realistic about the fact that if we want to defeat this movement, people are going to have to start standing up against it. Right. But the key thing I learned over the last few years is that doing that on your own is just a kamikaze mission. And what we need to do, and this is something you should talk about, Barry, uh, is actually be a little bit more organized and also recognize that this is not going to be won uh, on the battlefield of argument, uh, of the, on the battlefield of, of reason and evidence, because at the core of wokeism is a rejection of the mode of argument in which one might have a debate and uh, which evidence would be marshaled and arguments made. The key to this, this kind of warfare is that it is all about character destruction and questioning the good faith uh, of the person who objects. And so anybody who thinks that they're going to stand up and have a, a good argument about the rights and wrongs of positive discrimination, affirmative action, or you name it, they're not going to have that argument. They're, they're simply going to have their character destroyed. Uh, and so you can't simply be that heroic person who jumps out of the trench and runs at the machine guns unless you want to be uh, destroyed. What's the lesson I've learned from this? Well, at some level, the power grab has happened because of a very powerful network 
of like-minded people who, as John says, realized that there was actually a way to take over institutions, beginning with certain academic departments, and through appointments and promotions, gradually to take control. We who have stood on the other side and argued for the principles of the Enlightenment, of individual identity, not uh, a collective identity, uh, of equality before the law, not equity, whatever that means. We've we've actually been playing the wrong game. We we didn't even take a knife to a gunfight. We went with a pea shooter or maybe some kind of catapult. We needed to organize in a comparable way. And I think this is your cue, Barry, to talk about fair and what the significance of fair is. And maybe I can say a bit of a word. I'll say a word about AFA after you say a let me, word. Let me chime in. The, 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 uh, we need to rebuild alternative institutions of civil society. Uh, as, as an economist, competition is the cell for all goods. And in some sense, the root of this is not enough competition. It's hard to rebuild new institutions. But, but when the New York Times is failing, we have to rebuild Substack. Or, <laughs> when or, or in, you need defense against the crowd in institutions that will stand up and, and help you to get your word out and defend yourself. And now on to the, to the ones you have going here. So what, one of the things that uh, we launched, God, I guess it's now three weeks ago, um, and it came together very, very quickly, is an organization called the Foundation Against Intolerance and Racism. And this is meant to pick up uh, the flag that the ACLU and the SPLC put down long ago by fighting for fairness, by fighting for equality, by standing up for good anti-racism and for educating the public, which frankly is often very confused, understandably, by this ideology because of the way it presents itself. And so um, people should, listening, I hope, will go to check out fairforall.org and check out the board. Um, I think it's kind of a model of the kind of institutions we need to be building. It's the first of hopefully many. Right now we're organizing, we're really, really focused on empowering parents to stand up against this ideology in their kids' schools. And it's not just the elite schools, it's public schools all over the country. Um, and we're organizing uh, parent chapters all over the country right now to help empower them and, and have them stand up for their kids. Um, so that's one thing we're doing. The other thing we're doing is uh, choosing lawsuits carefully and um, getting behind certain suits that we think could be precedent setting. And we also hope to be making videos um, and really educating the public to explain to them what this ideology is really about when you look be beyond the hashtag and the slogan. Fair is great. I hope Neil will talk about the similar organization that's happening inside the academy, but these are only the very, very beginnings. The thing that I believe um, that I will be doing for the rest of my lifetime and that I think anyone who's concerned about this needs to be doing is focusing on building new institutions, new organizations, in my case, new media, but in someone else's case, it might mean a new university. Three years ago, when I walked into the New York Times, I knew it was biased. I was never going to be invited to sit at the popular kids' table for various reasons. But I really was of the mindset that like, it could be reformed from within. I have to say that I've, I've been disabused of that strategy. I just don't think it works in many of these cases that have been sort of decayed beyond repair. Some institutions, maybe the University of Chicago, St. John's, I can think of ones that can be shored up. But in general, I think the attitude of those of us who are concerned about by what's going on is not, 
yay, we managed to smuggle through one good op-ed every six months. No, it's let's start a new op-ed page. And before we talk about the future of journalism, which I very much think we should, a brief word about the Academic Freedom Alliance. A few years ago, I wrote a, a piece saying that we needed NATO for professors with an Article 5 stating that an attack on one was an attack on all. In other words, some kind of concerted defense strategy, preferably with a deterrent effect. That now exists, uh, uh, thanks to uh, Robbie George at Princeton and others, the AFA, Academic Free Freedom Alliance, exists to protect professors when uh, they come under attack, uh, so that you're not twisting in the wind on your own. And I'm beginning to see the, the first signs that this organization uh, and others, uh, FIRE is another good example, uh, Heterodox Academy is a third. These organizations are showing that we do actually have some defensive and deterrent capability. And I think this is going to be in the courts, ultimately, that uh, it gets decided. That is to say, it's only when organizations suffer significant loss as a result of uh, woke policies that the tide's going to turn. And uh, the case just reported, interestingly, on CNN of a professor uh, whose, uh, whose case was, uh, was upheld uh, after he had essentially been cancelled for not going along uh, with the preferred pronouns rigmarole at his uh, university. I think that the potential to use uh, lawfare, to use organization and litigation to push back is real, but we're just at the beginning of this of this journey. Anyway, that's enough of an ad for uh, AFA. We right? should be able to have new, like universities. Uh, it's even harder than media. When universities are failing, which they are, they are not teaching our children basic things that they need to learn. Uh, new universities should spring up and, and uh, that we have to sue and push the current universities to reform uh, is, is, well, it's a sign of how non-competitive the university business is. Barry wrote beautifully about this in your Harvard-Westlake piece, uh, that, that we seem to be this stratified society where, where getting ahead in America means you need to go to one of the top 10 universities, and that means you need to do whatever it takes to learn to, to speak that language. But it does seem media is more amenable to competition, that, that new things are coming up. Uh, so I don't know whether you want to talk about uh, new universities or new media. Um, well, it's new everything. If I had to go back, and the, the advice that I give to younger people is the extent to which there still is local journalism and it's possible for you to actually go out and report, which is the number one skill that I think young journalists should be learning how to use, learn, learning uh, to acquire, go do that. If you're interested in climbing the ladder and introducing yourself as X from the New York Times, and that's the most important value to you, by all means, Start writing woke things at the age of 16. Never stop, don't stop, never stopping until you walk into those doors of the old great lady. And if you keep doing that for a while, uh, you'll probably have good job security. That's not why I went into journalism. I went into journalism because it's a profession that rewards curiosity. And at the New York Times, curiosity was quite literally a liability. You really like you can't be curious about certain subjects or it means like you, you kind of get waved off. And then the right. more insidious thing that happens is that you start waving yourself off of those topics. And when I started to feel myself doing that, I was like, this is this is not this is not why I went into this profession. If I want to, you know, just 
write copy, you know, mindlessly, I can make a lot more money doing it if I start a PR company, let's be honest. Is the Times doing what it's doing because it wants to or because it has to? My, my impression of the Times is that this is what's what it has to do in the current economic situation. You can't support yourself by advertising uh, from large companies who want you to have a really good reputation because your reputation bears on them. Then you have to hit the paywall. And, uh, and right. the kind of people who are willing to pay are the kind of ones who seem to want what the New York Times offers. And, and the minute Brett, you or Brett Stevens writes something they don't like, they'll say, oh, I'm canceling my subscription. So can, how does media pay for itself uh, when advertisement doesn't, when, when advertising by large corporations who want you to be sensible fails? Right. That's the billion dollar question. If you look at the surveys of the New York Times readership, it's something like 92 or 95% identifies as liberal. Now, there's a huge difference. There's a chicken and egg there too, but yes. <laughs> huge difference also between what liberal means to someone like my grandmother, who's 83 years old and is, or 85 and has subscribed to the New York Times for her entire life. Yep. Now, strangely, like she's like kind of, kind of an experiment for me to watch. She's being radicalized by the paper now. Um, and the younger liberal gener- liberals who are on Twitter um, and, you know, causing a, you know, absolute shitstorm every time the paper does something that they don't like. So I think that there's a little bit of pandering to that younger, gen- a very, very loud group and the sense that, wait, if we want this model to continue for the younger generation and we actually want to convert Twitter outrage into paid subscribers, we have to listen to these people and give them what they want. The question in journalism right now is we obviously know from every single study that's been done about social media that outrage sells and outrage keeps people engaged. So the question is, is there a model for journalism that is not built on monetizing human beings' outrage and polarizing people and making us hate one another? Mm-hmm. I really hope so. Yeah, you know, I think I think there is. And Barry, what I'd like to do to hear is what is what is your assessment of the degree to which the younger generation is projecting, you know, critical race theory, for example, and and all various forms of of bigotry and, and, and racism. And I mean, uh, you know, racism in, in the way that you have, have des- described it and, and of, of working against it in a rational way. Because if you think about it, what they're being told is is that you should be judged by your identity category, you know, not by the content of your character, as Martin Luther King said, that we ought to be ju- judge one another, uh, or by your abilities and what you bring to a, a team, whether it's an, an infantry platoon or a corporation or an academic department or, or a construction company. They're also being told that, hey, you're either a victim or you're an oppressor, right? They're also being told that they cannot empathize with one another anymore. Really, really, because if you're if you are not in a certain identity category, yeah, you can no. no longer really understand even you know the, the experience of others. I mean, how long is, is it going to take before younger the younger generation rejects that and says no, that's that's really not an, an ideology for me. And and are you are you finding a receptive receptive audiences among students because that's another way maybe to reform academic institutions is for the students as well as the parents to demand better. And there's a lot of students hungry for that sort of thing. Right. I mean, I hear, as you guys can imagine, from the dissident students or the closeted students. Those are the people that write me. They're overwhelmingly liberal and progressive, but they just think that this ideology is what it is, which is retrograde. Often, though, they're very scared to speak out about it. Why? Because they're also ambitious. And because right now they like just think about it this way. Okay. 
if you exit the legacy press, things have changed in the past six months with Substack and Patreon and, and podcasting. But in general, if you exit the world of the New York Times, what you get inside of the world of the New York Times is MacArthur Awards, Guggenheim Awards, Pulitzer Prizes, invitations to Aspen, invitations to, you know, whatever fancy things, um, good tables at restaurants, not for nothing, um, book deals and speaking circuit and invitations on MSNBC and CNN every single night. You exit it. What do you get? I'll speak from my personal experience. You maybe get to keep your book contract. From now on, though, you're probably going to have to go to Regnery and you get invited on Fox News. That's a very bad bargain for a young person. Like, let's just say the average journalist. But the same thing applies to lots of other places. So we need to make that we need to make exit easier. And the way that we make exit easier is by giving people, and this is what I want to be doing, the, the newsletter on Substack being only the beginning of it, creating a new world where people can live in and, not, and, and a world that's not just reactionary to woke, but a world that's just not woke, a world that's just perpendicular to all of this. You know, I'm not interested in spending my life or the next 10 years of my life standing with a few people on a beach trying to punch back against a tsunami. I'd rather just go down the beach and make a better party that people want to go to. If you go and like I'm kind of a magazine nerd and look back at old Vogue's and Vanity Fairs and you know Spy and the rest from the 90s you're like that's a party I want to go to. Like that like you can't find any joy, any sense of a different sound. When you pick up, I used to be so excited when I would get a new New Yorker, you know, 15 years ago. Now I'm like, I don't even need to read it. I already know what's in it. I already know what it's going to sound like. Same thing with NPR. Same thing with all of these places I used to listen to and love and envy and trust. And so the question now is how do we build new things that stoke that kind of feeling in us? And right now I think we are starting on that path and certainly we have new organizations that are trying to fight it, which is necessary. But I think the real killer of this ideology will be when people have an alternative world that they can go to that's more exciting and attractive to them right now than the legacy one is. And helps them feel pride. Yes. Of, of who we are as a people and our society in, in one another. You know, I'm reminded of Richard Worthy's old, old uh, observation that you know, that that pride is to nations like self-respect is to individuals, a, a necessary condition for self-improvement. And, and I think we have a real deficit of pride these days. And what's reinforcing, I think, this, you know, the polarization of our society associated with this interaction, I think, between you know, critical race theory on, on, on one extreme and white supremacist uh, uh, people and, and, and racists on, on another extreme, they feed on each other. They pull us apart from 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 one another, uh, and 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 uh, and that combined with the way we teach our history, I think it has resulted in in a real crisis of of national pride. Jar here, I think the military has great lessons for us, which you've been kind enough to say. One, you guys know how to define and instill a culture. The military did an amazing thing on race relations starting in the 1950s. You will not be racist in this organization, uh, just way ahead of the rest of the society. And you know how to define pride. You know how to define a culture, which is 
other institutions seem to, you know, whatever you guys come in with, well, fine, that's the way it is, as opposed to defining an institutional culture. And in a hopeful note, uh, I did just see this morning that um, ratings on, on some of the CNN and MSNBC, now that Trump is gone, uh, the outrage ratings are just plummeting. Uh, so maybe we'll get back to being able to read interesting things like John McPhee in the New Yorker <laughs> stuff right, Neil, Neil. about geology on Route 80 and not just, oh, Trump, Trump, Trump. Well, it is a kind of good news question, because one of the things that I'm encouraged by is that you, uh, Andrew Sullivan, uh, Matt Taibbi, a whole bunch of writers, uh, Matty Iglesias, uh, very much a, a writer on the left, have all in your various ways ended up uh, writing through Substack. And for those who don't know, uh, this means that you're essentially selling your, your content direct to the readers. Your readers subscribe, and I do subscribe to you, Barry, and to the other authors I just mentioned. And uh, according to a very uh, bright man named Ben Thompson, who writes the Stratechery blog, you guys are all making more money than you ever did before, because there is, in fact, a huge demand for quality writing. And I this just made me so cheered up uh, that, in fact, just going straight to the consumer through the what is in effect the kind of platform of Substack, it works. So when you go to that other beach to have that party, there's a whole bunch of the most interesting writers in the world, and you have more money to spend on the drink. So please invite me to the party. <laughs> You're invited. So You're we invited. started. We started with the I internet. Is the... that is, um, it's true. It's been incredible. I mean, I joined eight weeks ago now, and it's it's going really wonderfully. And, and I'm spending some of that money to pay writers uh, as guest posters, much more than I could ever pay them at the times with the op-ed budget. So I think that that's really fantastic. What I'll say is that right now I'm paying way more in newsletter and podcast subscriptions than I am for the Wall Street Journal to come to my house every day. So at some point, and this is what I'm really, really interested in, for those of us who are nerds, who live a lot of our life on the internet, which I imagine is the Goodfellas exempting HR, of course, um, it's easy, right? We know who to follow. We're on Twitter, blah, blah, blah. No. For the average dentist or accountant or someone like my parents who's, you know, who are really intelligent but are like, what's Substack again? What's Patreon? We need to make it easier, I think, for the average American. So I'm really interested in sort of curating the world of the outsider intellectuals, the people that are speaking, I would say for the rest of us, because I feel increasingly that the legacy press um, is speaking to the tiniest, tiniest sliver of American life. And the group that I think of as sort of the self-silencing majority, some of whom I would say, John, are posing as true believers, but aren't actually true believers and are desperate for an alternative. I wanna give them that alternative. I can't cancel you guys as the moderator, but I can bring this to a halt. So let's uh, let's wrap up the show with one last question, and it's this. Um, I don't know if we've solved the question whether or not uh, cancel culture is McCarthyism, uh, if it's a fever we're undergoing, or if it's a cancer that's here and needs to be cured long-term. But I do know this, deferring to my historian friends, uh, McCarthyism, the tipping point for McCarthyism is when someone has the nerve to confront Joseph McCarthy and say, have you no decency? So the question to Barry and, and the Goodfellows is this. Is there such a thing as a tipping point for cancel culture? What, what is the equivalent of somebody saying, have you no decency and moving away from this mentality? Well, I'll go first, because in a way, it's a historical question. The answer is that you think it's going to come much sooner than it does. Right. 
if this is the French Revolution, I'm afraid it's probably only 1790. Uh, the, the moment of, the, of truth in the French Revolution was when Robespierre himself was guillotined. But remember, the French Revolution, even after that, did not exactly take France back uh, to whatever liberal principles the revolution had begun with. The worrying thing for me is that uh, the Great Awakening or the Cultural Revolution has some way to go. And it's very hard to see how you turn the tide as institution after institution accepts the new totalitarianism from, from below. So I, I don't think this is McCarthyism. Looking back on it, McCarthyism was quite short-lived uh, and it was quite actually quite easy uh, to, to call his bluff in the end, even although he actually wasn't fantasizing that there were card-carrying communists uh, in the US government, but this is not McCarthyism. Uh, and this will be much, much harder to get to a tipping point. It may take years. Okay, HR? Well, you know, the question you mentioned was aimed at McCarthy, right? Have you, you no know, decency? I think maybe the tipping point is a question that we aim at the audience of those who peddle critical race theory, for example. And, and the simple question I think to ask is, do you really believe that you should really evaluate others, judge others by their identity category rather than by their character and their ability and, and what they can bring to whatever uh, enterprise or whatever community uh, that, that, that you're, you're part of. And, and so I think we need to make a case for, again, you know, color blindness, tolerance, mm -hmm. empathy for one another. And that positive case and that simple question, uh, I, I think, can, can, can maybe be a tipping point. I'm, I'm of a darker mood. Uh, HR is always the, the optimistic guy. Uh, McCarthy was one guy. This isn't one guy. Mm -hmm. uh, this is a political slash religious movement, uh, like, say, the Protestant Reformation, which was not that pleasant if you look at the body count, uh, designed to seize and keep power uh, in the name of some vaguely defined utopia. To, to HR's point, the more ridiculous the uh, ideology, the better. Um, when forced to stand up and pledge, you know, Maoist ideology or, or Marxist-Leninism, uh, it's a sign of, of forcing people to stand up and say ridiculous things that says, I'm in, I'm in the team here. And these things end uh, in, into, we, we are, the beginnings of a counter-revolution is there, as, as we've talked about, there are hopefully new institutions to fight back. But these things end, I'll play amateur historian, in exhaustion or the discovery of an external threat. Uh, so, uh, in, you know, the Protestant Reformation ended 30 years later, if, if uh, I'll get the numbers wrong and Neil will kill me for it, uh, <laughs> in, in exhaustion, uh, or, or when a society discovers an external threat, the need to be effective, to be competitive, that we don't have time for this sort of stuff. And so that, that view says there's a long way to go. Hey, Barry, would, I'll give you the final word. Well, I would imagine that, that, well, it's a topic for another conversation that that external threat is here in the form of China, uh, but that's a conversation. We're, we're not serious about it yet, though, right? Thank you for having me on Goodfellas again. Look, I would say that one thing that gives me a lot of strength and you know whatever courage I'm able to exhibit in my life is the fact that all the good people, all the people that I really admire, um, even though we don't have the numbers, we have the quality. And just to give a shout out to Ion. 
she was the first person that I spoke to um, after I this. I think it was right when I sent the letter, right when I decided to leave the Times. And I have to be honest that I was a mess. Like I don't even, I was emotionally blacked out. And the first thing she said to me was, do you need a job? Uh, like I'll hire you tomorrow. And that is the kind of like solidarity that I think that those of us who are on the side of reason, of enlightenment principles, um, of empathy on a vision of America and Americanism that insists on our common humanity, over what makes us different, need to be giving each other that kind of strength and solidarity and um and and yeah, that's that sense of strength and solidarity. And I've I have to say, you know, it was really exciting to tell people that I worked at the New York Times. I remember when I got the job, I called my grandparents, who as I mentioned, have been life lifelong subscribers and they were crying. But I haven't regretted leaving for a single second. And I find that this life, let's call it the building a life on the outside and building a new world on the outside is much, much more meaningful. Um, it's maybe a little uh, less glossy and a little less fancy, at least to start, but I find it to be incredibly meaningful. And so if you're listening to this and you're a young person and you're wondering um, what life might look like for you if you decide to make the choice of exit, um, I will simply say that the party is growing by the day and that there's some really, really um, not just smart, but wise and uh, loyal people out here. Let's do one other thing. If you're listening to this, sign up for Barry's uh, great newsletter on Substack, and it's called Common Sense with Barry Weiss. And the address for that is barryweiss.substack.com. Let me repeat that, barryweiss.substack.com. While you're at it, go to Amazon and get her book, How to Fight Anti-Semitism. HR mentioned that. You can also get Neil Ferguson's Doom while you're there. You can get HR's Battlegrounds as well. Make it a trifecta, if you will. So that's it for this episode of Goodfellas This Week. We hope you enjoyed the conversation. We'll be back next week with a new topic. Uh, on behalf of Hoover's Goodfellows, Neil Ferguson, HR McMaster, John Cocker, and our very special guest today, Barry Weiss. Thanks for joining us. By all means, stay safe, stay healthy. We will do our best here at the Hoover Institution to help you stay informed. We'll see you next week. Thank you.